Dear Father, please be with us just now as we take another look at really the most important time in human history. And again, we ask that you would help us as we try to understand what was revealed by your life, by your death. May we begin to internalize your character, your principles, and what this means for our lives today. And may we live this out as we treat others. Amen. Well, as I said, we are um, spending Matthew, Mark, and Luke mainly, I mean, we're going in between the Gospels, of course, to kind of round out the story, but uh, for these three weeks, we're concentrating on uh, the birth and life of Jesus, and then we get to John, we'll focus a little bit more on the events surrounding Gethsemane and the cross. And Mark is uh, really a very interesting book and has kind of uh, in some ways, a different emphasis than some of the other books. And I'm going to talk about that um, in a little bit. But first of all, some people have called this Peter's Gospel. And I won't go into all the reasons for this, but it is interesting here when we go to First Peter, um, Peter talks about his son or his disciple, Mark. And uh, for a variety of reasons, some people think that the book of Mark uh, was uh, perhaps greatly influenced by the disciple Peter. So we'll kind of on that theme, we'll spend a little bit more time talking about uh, Peter today. Now, this is from uh, Matthew, and I was actually going to talk about this last week, but we ran out of time. But it relates very much to Peter. And so I want to read uh, this verse here in Matthew. Jesus went to the territory near the town of Caesarea Philippi, where he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptist, they answered. Others say Elijah, while others say Jeremiah or some other prophet. Isn't that kind of interesting? They thought, well, maybe he's Elijah or Jeremiah, some other prophet. What about you? He asked them, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, good for you, Simon, son of John. For this truth did not come to you from any human being, but it was given to you directly by my Father in heaven. Okay, what truth? Remember, this was uh, the disciples did not right away meeting Jesus say, oh, this, this is God in human form. What is Peter beginning to understand? Well, he's the Messiah, the Son of God. And as we've talked about so many times, uh, eventually it seemed like they really came to the conclusion that this was none other than God in human form. John 1, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and in so many other places. And so Jesus here seems to get uh, very excited at this uh, revelation here that Peter is getting about who he really is. And this truth came directly from the Father. And we read on, uh, this is the rock on which I will put together my church. Okay, what rock? Uh, a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. And that's not all. You will have complete and free access to God's kingdom, keys to open any and every door. No more barriers between heaven and earth. Earth and heaven, a yes on earth is a yes in heaven. A no on earth is a no in heaven. And I think you can kind of pick up uh, anytime we slip into the message uh, Bible, uh, the flare there. But notice, what is the rock? Peter had just revealed this truth and Jesus says, that's right. And on this truth, on this rock, this is what I, how I will build my church together. 
All right, now, what does this mean? Um, I think, uh, as we'll go through here in a few slides, that this revelation, Jesus is God, God is exactly as Jesus revealed him to be, that on that truth, that is what will change everything. And the gates of hell cannot prevail. And by the way, uh, what does that mean? The gates of hell will not uh, keep it out or prevail. Um, is a gate an offensive weapon or something of defense? You've never seen someone in a battlefield carrying a gate around to attack someone, right? Um, a gate is for defense, to keep things out. So um, notice who's on the offensive here and what is the weapon? It is ultimately um, God is just like this. Jesus is God. And that message is the one thing. I mean, I think if Satan could uh, blind us from believing one thing, uh, that would be it. All right, but let's read. Who is the rock? Well, all the way through the Bible, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my savior, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the strength of my salvation, my stronghold. Who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? And we've, I've referred to this verse many times, 1 Corinthians 10.4, referring to the God who went with the children of Israel in the wilderness. They drank from the spiritual rock that went with them, and that rock was Christ himself. Christ is ultimately the rock. Now, remember in this verse that the church would be built upon this rock. And so uh, how did Peter understand this? Unfortunately, he referred to it here in 1 Peter 2. Come to the Lord, the living stone, rejected by people as worthless, but chosen by God as valuable. All right, but notice Peter also, this is kind of a word play, but the word Peter also means a stone, like a little pebble. All right, but notice Jesus is ultimately the rock, but we are to come as living stones and let yourselves be used in building the spiritual temple where you will serve as holy priests, offer spiritual and acceptable sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus here, I think, is seeing, look, this is how my temple, my people will come together. I am the rock. And now, Peter, you got it. You understand. And now you will be built as living stones um, together. And again, one other place in Ephesians. You two are built upon the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. The cornerstone, again, who's the cornerstone? Being Christ, Jesus himself. He's the one who holds the whole building together and makes it grow into a sacred temple dedicated to the Lord. So do we see here in all three places, Matthew, 1 Peter, Ephesians, Jesus is the rock. We are built together into a spiritual temple on the rock. All right, and ultimately, again, coming back to the meaning, the understanding, and I love this verse in 1 John, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Why did Jesus come? What understanding did he give us? Well, he came so that we know the real God. He came to reveal his character so that we know him. And we are in the one who is real, his son, Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ is the real God and eternal life. And I love that you know, people like John here come along many years later and write, this one was the real God. And of course, what have we said is eternal life Ultimately, eternal life is to know God. How do we know God? Through the man, Jesus Christ. All right, so moving into Mark here, uh, I like how Mark opens. 
Again, what is the good news? This is the good news about Jesus Christ. And who, if we just said, who's Jesus Christ? He's God. The good news ultimately is about God. And so Mark goes in here, uh, and, and what I want to do now is just to describe kind of the unique uh, flair here in the book of Mark, which describes so often um, the expression or the emotion as, of Jesus as he deals with people. Right, so later on here in Mark 1, a man suffering from a dreaded skin disease came to Jesus, knelt down and begged him for help. If you want to, he said, you can make me clean. Jesus was filled with pity and reached out and touched him. I do want to, he answered. Be clean. Now imagine if you're here and you had witnessed this interaction between this man and Jesus, and you chose the words here, Jesus was filled with pity. And we imagine, what? how did he appear? What was his facial appearance that would lead you to describe this experience as Jesus being filled with pity? Well, if, if Jesus is... God in human form, uh, do you like it that he would see someone suffering and would be filled with pity? And um, I like that very much. And I think, you know, we, we read this in the Old Testament, but I think it begins to sink in when we actually see there is one like us in human form and we observe him being filled with pity at human suffering. But we get this in the Old Testament. So I put this in from Hosea. And this is in reference to the children of Israel going off into captivity. And we see God again being filled with pity. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you and cast you off, O Israel? How can I make you as Adma or how can I treat you as Zeboam? My heart recoils within me or churns within me. My compassions are kindled together. But we see this is the same God all the way through, filled with compassion at human suffering, and at uh, the results of sin. But again, we see Jesus the man going through that emotion, and it convinces us, yes, God really is like this. Okay, let's go through a few other examples. Then Jesus went back to the synagogue, these are all from Mark, where there was a man who had a paralyzed hand. Some people were there who wanted to accuse Jesus of doing wrong. So they watched him closely to see whether he would cure the man on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man, come up here to the front. Then he asked the people, what does our law allow us to do on the Sabbath, to help or to harm, to save someone's life or to destroy it? But they did not say a thing. Jesus was angry as he looked around at them, but at the same time, he felt sorry for them because they were so stubborn and wrong. Now, can you imagine this, uh, this emotion in yourself? be angry with someone, but at the same time, you feel sorry for them. You know, when we try to understand things like God's anger, um, I think here is a good description. Imagine, how would you describe someone as looking with anger because they're so stubborn and wrong, yet simultaneously, there is sorrow, sadness. You feel sorry for these people. Okay, remember, these people who are so stubborn that they would think it would be a bad thing to help someone on the Sabbath, okay, these are Jesus' children, right? They're God's children. So, yes, he's angry, but at the same time, there is love and sorrow simultaneously. Okay, and then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And, of course, he stretched it out, and it became well again. And so the Pharisees left the synagogue, and they had a meeting, 
And they said, we saw the most incredible thing. This man's hand was healed. I think this is the Messiah. Let's all come together. Let's make him king. Uh, no, they left this incredible situation and met at once with some members of Herod's party and they made plans to kill Jesus for doing such a horrible thing. It seems unthinkable. I mean, you read the story about uh, the resurrection of Lazarus, four days in the tomb. And Jesus comes, raises him from the dead, and then you read on, the Pharisees left and met, made plans to crucify Jesus. Um, again, this, uh, the picture of God that Jesus brought to them was so counter to how they believed God was that this was actually repulsive to them. Hard as that is for us to imagine. Okay, another example here. In Mark 6, there were many people coming and going that Jesus and his disciples didn't even have time to eat. So he said to them, let us go off by ourselves to some place where we'll be alone and you can rest a while. So they started out on a boat by themselves to a lonely place. Many people, however, saw them leave and knew at once who they were. So they went from all the towns and ran ahead by land and arrived at the place ahead of Jesus and his disciples. Okay, so notice, Jesus is tired. They don't even have time to eat. Let's sneak away and have a little time to recuperate. All right, but when Jesus got off the boat, he saw this large crowd and again, his heart was filled with pity for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. Now, perhaps we might say this is not of deep theological consequence here. And let's go on to justification or sanctification or some of these other topics. But uh, I actually think this is a very deep significance. We want to know ultimately what God is like. And here we see again and again and again, this is how... Jesus dealt with this situation. He's tired, he's exhausted, he wants to get away, but the people are there, he's filled with pity, and uh, he takes time to teach them. Okay, a little later on, another story. Some messengers came from Jairus' house. Now remember, his daughter was sick, so Jesus leaves, they're on their way to the house, but the messengers come and told them, your daughter has died, why bother the teacher any longer? And Jesus paid no attention to what they said, but told him, don't be afraid, only believe. Then he did not let anyone else go on with him except Peter and James and his brother John. And they arrived at his house where Jesus saw the confusion and heard all the loud crying and wailing. He went in and said to them, why all this confusion? Why are you crying? The child is not dead, she's only sleeping. And they started making fun of him. And I always like to hear, just stop and imagine, you know, what happens if you make fun of God? Uh, you know, Jesus called down fire from heaven. Or, you know, what did he do? They're making fun of him for, this, uh, for him saying that she's only sleeping. Okay, what did he actually do? Well, he put them all out. I don't know how he did that, but uh, put them all out. And he took the child's father and mother and his three disciples and went into the room where the child was lying. He took her by the hand and said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I tell you to get up. And she got up at once and started walking around. She was 12 years old. And when this happened, they were completely amazed. But Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone. But notice, and he said, uh, give her something to eat. Um, again, a small thing, perhaps not of uh, deep, uh, complicated theo theology, but of all these people in the room, notice that it's Jesus who notices, you know what, she's hungry. Let's, let's get her some food. 
right? I like that, uh, that God would be concerned about a little detail like that after he obviously just has the power uh, to resurrect her. And of course, when you get in, you study pathology. When someone dies, it does not take very long before all of the connections and the neurons in the brain are destroyed. So really, to raise someone from death like this, even after such a short period of time, uh, is nothing short of totally recreating that person from nothing. So uh, really an incredible uh, miracle here, but again, give her some food. Okay, now on to Mark 10, and another story. As Jesus was starting on his way again, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to receive eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. Right? A good question. Is Jesus good? Absolutely. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not accuse anyone falsely. Do not cheat. Respect your father and mother. Now, this is kind of interesting, isn't it? If someone asked you, what must I do for eternal life? Uh, would your response be... Um, well, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't accuse anyone falsely. Uh, but notice how Jesus here is uh, engaging this man. He knows really what is at the root of this, uh, of this man's heart. A teacher, the man said, ever since I was young, I've obeyed all these commandments. And notice, Jesus looked straight at him with love and said, you need only one thing, go and sell all you have and give the money to the poor, and you will have riches in heaven. Then come and follow me. And so, of course, Jesus here, I think, read through this man and knew exactly, specifically for him, what was keeping him back. But notice how he looks at him here. Uh, and just imagine, what would this look be like? Uh, wouldn't it be neat if we had uh, here the Bible and, and Jesus and a DVD and we could just watch it? But... Uh, the person who witnessed this observed that Jesus looked straight at him with love. And um, again, did Jesus know that he wouldn't respond to this? I think he probably did. But uh, look how he looked at him, straight at him with love, knowing that this is the last time, at least in physical form, that he would encounter uh, this person. All right, story after story. We're trying to build a picture of God. And I think each of these instances help uh, as we're trying to do that. Well, they came to Capernaum, and after going indoors, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you arguing about on the road? But they would not answer him, because on the road, they had been arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. This was, seemed to be their favorite topic all the way through. Um, now, does this kind of remind you, we talked about Jesus coming into the garden and saying uh, to Adam and Eve, where are you? Okay. He knew exactly where they were. Did Jesus know what they were talking about along the road? All right, but just the way he does it, you know, hey, what were you talking about? And of course, they have nothing to say. Okay, how does he deal with this, uh, their just selfish compulsion to be number one? Well, this is how he breaks in. Jesus sat down, called the 12 disciples and said to them, whoever wants to be first must place himself last of all and be the servant of all. Then he took a child and had him stand in front of them. And I have to say, I hadn't even missed that it happened this way. But here's what he did with his child. He put his arms around him and said to them, 
Whoever welcomes in my name one of these children welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also the one who sent me. And I want to spend just a little bit of time now talking about uh, this root problem that Jesus dealt with in his disciples who wanted to be first. I want to sit at your right side. I want to be first. And Jesus always answering back, which if you really want to be first in my kingdom, uh, you must be a servant. And so this, uh, we read on just the next chapter here in Mark, same thing comes up. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, will you do us a favor? And Jesus asked them what they wanted. And they answered, When you come into your glory, please let one of us sit at your right side and the other at your left. And it's interesting, when you read this story in Matthew, it was the mother of James and John who said, Let my sons sit at your right side. And Jesus told them, You don't really know what you're asking. And of course, the other disciples find out about this. And when the ten other disciples heard this, they were angry with James and John. But Jesus called the disciples together and said, You know that those foreigners who call themselves kings like to order their people around, and their great leaders have full power over the people they rule. But don't act like them. I think this is very significant. Um, our, in, our world operates entirely on a survival of the fittest principle where we will beat someone else down as we try to rise to the top. And we like to be at the top because we like to have full power over people and to order them around. Right? This is just the way things work, whether it's in politics or business or whatever. And Jesus is saying, don't act like that. My kingdom is not like that. Now, I want to tell you what my kingdom is like. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you must be the servant of all the others. And if you want to be first, you must be everyone's slave. The Son of Man did not come to be a slave master, but a slave who will give his life to rescue many people. And I think this is very significant, and it applies very much to us as physicians or studying to be physicians, uh, because ultimately you are going into a field which is service-oriented and is very much in line with the ideal of God's kingdom. And this, this theme is, is so prevalent. I love this verse here in Romans. Your task is to single-mindedly serve Christ. Now, it's pretty easy, I think, to serve a God who serves us, right? So we are serving a God who is himself service-oriented. Now, read this next sentence. Strength is for service, not status. Right now... Uh, becoming a doctor, it, it can really be two ways because it can be for status, power. And there is that that comes with becoming a physician. But notice ultimately that the education and all of that is ultimately to put you at the top in God's kingdom, which is ultimately to be a servant. All right, That is the highest position, to be the most humble and service Oriented. Each one of us needs to look after the good of the people around us, asking ourselves, how can I help? And that's exactly what Jesus did. It can go two ways, though. Um, I mean, imagine on one hand, uh, you're working in the ER and a homeless person comes in with an open leg wound or something, and uh, that individual is treated with respect and dignity by highly trained, educated nurses, physicians, service. 
Okay, that's ideal. Um, but I have to say, when I did my training up in Oregon, a homeless person with an open leg wound did come into the emergency room. And I was tagging along with this other attending who, after taking care of this individual, uh, made the comment, uh, what a low life, but it pays the bills. All right, now, um, you can see there's the attitude of, uh, that's not really service, is it? That is, uh, ultimately, in, in this individual, and who I'm, I'm sure will never be listening to these recordings, but, uh, but ultimately was, was telling his patients almost every day where he had trained, Johns Hopkins, Johns Hopkins. And uh, the attitude was very much, uh, do you know who I am? You're very lucky to get to see me. All right. So physicians can have that arrogant attitude, which ultimately, even in the act of taking care of patients, what are you doing? You're feeding self. Patients are coming, tell me how good I am. Feed self. Okay, so it can be that way, or it can be totally other-centered. Right? Some individuals seem to have understood this. I love this quote by Gandhi. The best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. And a few other quotes. There is nothing to make you like, like other human beings so much as doing things for them. Okay, do you wonder, I don't really like other people that much. I don't feel like doing other things for them. Well, begin the life of service and trying to do things for other people. That stimulates love for those people within. And Einstein, only a life lived in service to others is worth living. Right? And finally, this one other quote, which, which I like very much. Unselfishness, now and in the context, this is really describing service, other-centered love. Notice that this is the principle of God's kingdom. Okay, not one of many principles, but it is the principle. This is the entire way... It's just like a law of gravity. This is the way our universe is designed to operate, where we are other-centered. The principle of God's kingdom is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. From the beginning of the great controversy, he's endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish. And he deals in the same way with all who serve God. To disprove Satan's claim is the work of Christ and of all who bear his name. It was to give in his own life an illustration of unselfishness, of service, that Jesus came in the form of humanity. And all who accept this principle are to be workers together with him in demonstrating it in practical life. And uh, I could just, there are so many examples of this. I think even in the ideal setting, that this is the way our universe is designed to operate. For example, just imagine something like uh, in nature, ideally. Uh, wouldn't you like to study under this tree? Um, looks kind of nice here, but something like an apple tree like this. I mean, what's it for? It's ultimately to serve. We enjoy its shade, its beauty. Of course, it has blossoms and eventually it has fruit. It requires minimal resources or effort on our part to maintain it. Okay, it is there ideally to serve. So many other things. What about uh, uh, children? You have a baby. I mean, you are entirely service to that baby for the first few years of life. will not survive unless you are giving, 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 giving. All right, so I have some pictures here. These are my sons and, uh, and my daughter, so they grow up. But what happens when kids grow up? Parents get old. Who takes care of them? Okay, again, the children are in turn to serve the parents in their old age. So hopefully they watch this many years later and uh, will remember. But... Um, 
Anyway, it is this uh, entirely back and forth. We serve others. The love comes back to us. Um, just think about like Adam and Eve. Did God say to Adam, you know, it's better. You need to have someone, a companion. Did Adam need someone to serve him or did Adam need someone to serve? Adam serves Eve, vice versa. The two come together. They become one. So again, ideally in God's kingdom, there is this reciprocal service other-centered love that is involved. All law, what is all law? Eventually it is to love, but uh, notice here in Galatians, instead let love make you serve one another. For the whole law is summed up in one commandment, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And as we begin to live in a service, other-centered way, we begin to have this law of love written on our own heart. So many of these. In First Peter, do your work not for mere pay, but from a real desire to serve. And all of you must put on the apron of humility to serve one another. For the scripture says, God resists the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And why is that? Because God's kingdom is ultimately of people who are of this uh, service-oriented nature. Now, um, it's interesting that when Jesus comes back, what is he looking for? It would appear to be he's looking for a people who are serving. Then the king will say to the people on his right, come, you that are blessed by my father, come and possess the kingdom which has been prepared for you ever since the creation of the world. What are these people doing? I was hungry and you fed me, thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you received me in your homes, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me in prison and you visited me. Okay, these are the people that inherit the kingdom. And uh, I've read this so many times uh, to you just because it impresses me so much that right before the upper room, the disciples are still complaining, I want to be first. How does Jesus break into that? Uh, well, we have to read before. He knew that the Father had given him complete power. He knew he'd come from God, was going to God. So with all this power, recognition of it, he rose from the table took off his outer garment and took a towel around his waist and we read on, he washed the feet of his disciples. But I want to make this point again here that notice this uh, to some can sound weak. Service, humility, is this weakness? I think no, this comes from great power. Was Jesus weak? He was extremely powerful, possessed all power. And in recognition of this complete power, what comes out of that uh, great Love, service, humility. This is not weakness. And I like that uh, as we read on here, the description, he washes the feet of the disciples. And then he says, now that you know this truth, how happy you will be if you put it into practice. What truth? The truth, number one, that God is like this. God is the type of person who kneels and washes dirty feet. But also the truth of this great principle of his kingdom, this service-oriented Nature. How happy we'll be if you put it into practice. And I just uh, found this uh, quote this morning. Uh, Albert Schweitzer, I don't know what your destiny will be, but one thing I do know, the only ones among you who will be really happy are those who have sought and found how to serve. So again, many individuals, I think, uh, understanding, you know what, this is really what it's all about. This is the source of happiness because when we live in this way, we are living in harmony with the, the way God has designed this universe to operate. 
And finally, just as a last point um, here, uh, I have to bring this one up. Do we think this is just a temporary manifestation? Yeah, Jesus was like that, but that was just you know in his human form and uh, won't be like that in the hereafter. And uh, that's why I love this parable here of the banquet feast in heaven. Here's the description. It will be good for those whose servant those servants whose master finds them ready when he comes. What I'm about to tell you is true. The master will then dress himself so he can serve them. He will have them take their places at the table and he will come and wait on them. And is it just uh, blow your mind to think, you know, we're up in heaven and we're at the banquet feast. Who's your waiter? Uh, who is serving you? I mean, uh, the likes of you and me. Should be the other way around, right? And uh, here we have God serving other people. This is really what it's all about. And that our, the fact that our God is that way, I think it makes it very desirable for us to live in that way. Well, maybe in the last few minutes here, I'll get to one other point that I find fascinating that comes out in the book of Mark. <clears throat> Jesus left that place and he went to the province of Judea and crossed the Jordan River. Crowds came flocking to him again and he taught them as he always did. Some Pharisees came to him and tried to trap him. Tell us, they asked, does our law allow a man to divorce his wife? And this was a trap because he had just said earlier, you shouldn't divorce your wife. And of course, they here were armed with the Old Testament where there, was, there were divorce laws. Okay, how's he going to get out of this? Well, Jesus answered with a question, which is often a smart thing to do. Uh, what law did Moses give you? And their answer was, well, Moses gave permission for a man to write a divorce notice and send his wife away. And Jesus said to them, Moses wrote this law for you because you are so hard to teach. But in the beginning, at the time of creation, God made them male and female, as the scripture says. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and unite with his wife and the two will become one. So they are no longer two, but one. No human being must separate then what God has joined together. Now, I think this is deeply significant here because what is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, I gave you those rules because you are so hard to teach. This is a desperate situation. Uh, do you think I like divorce? No, but I gave you these rules because of the situation. And, and the good news here, this is probably the most mild translation of this, uh, some other versions. He wrote this command for you because you're heartless or because of the hardness of your heart, just like Pharaoh, or as a concession to your hard-hearted wickedness, or in the NIV, because your hearts were hard. Now, with that in mind, I think we can look back at the Old Testament. So many of these things that are confusing to us in the Old Testament and begin to understand um, you know, wait a minute, God is meeting us where we are during very difficult times. Um, and so I think this verse in Ezekiel applies. God describing the rebellion and the problem he's had dealing with his people. And he says, I did this because they had rejected my commands, broken my laws, profaned the Sabbath, and worshipped the same idols their ancestors had served. Then I gave them laws that are not good and commands that do not bring life. This is God talking, giving them laws that were not good and commands that do not bring life. Okay, what are some of those? Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, 
an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But he went on to say, no, love your enemy. Now, had they heard wrong? No, God gave the rule, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But in a time when killing and violence and all of this was so rampant, how low is God willing to go to try to reach a people? Apparently, there was a time for a rule like this. But Jesus, fortunately, comes along and says, no, that's not the ideal at all. Yes, I gave you that rule, but that was square one. Okay, and let's move on from there. Cities of refuge. Have you ever thought um, how cruel some of these uh, things were? Uh, imagine in our day, if you're uh, chopping wood and the axe handle flies off and you accidentally kill your neighbor. Well, back in this time, um, the brother or relative of that person would have every right to hunt you down and kill you. It was an accident, but that's just the way it was. Okay, how does God break in when there are traditions like this that are set up? And uh, well, here we have the cities of refuge where you could go off, flee to Riverside, let's say, and uh, remain there until uh, the high priest, you know, who should we say, what large pastor in the area passed away? Okay, and then you would be free to step out of the boundaries of Riverside and uh, without fear of being killed. Okay, that's the way things were in that time. But is it better to have a rule like this than for the traditions just to continue where your relatives could, relatives of the dead person could hunt you down and kill you. Again, God, God meeting people where they are. What about the law itself? Do you think it pleased God to bring his children out to Mount Sinai and say, stop killing, stop committing adultery, no more stealing? Um, again, the law was ultimately to meet us where we are. Paul explains it this way. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added in order to show what wrongdoing is. Who are laws for? Not for good people, but for lawbreakers and criminals, for the godless and sinful, for those who are not religious or spiritual. We need these rules to help highlight and to show us where we are living um, out of harmony with God. And if we have any doubt, let's read some of the other rules here around this time. Okay, and I don't bring this up for any other reason, just to say the people were doing this that came out to Mount Sinai. And God had to tell them, don't have sexual intercourse with any of your relatives. Don't disgrace your father by having intercourse with your mother. You must not disgrace your own mother. No man or woman is to have sexual relations with an animal. And we could go on and on and on. And those of you who have read through Leviticus know about all these rules. Okay, this can be offensive to us, or we can see, my goodness, God, rather than just wiping out planet Earth and saying, I'm starting over, this is a mess. No, he reached the people where they were. He gave them these rules. And um, eventually he came to bring us to a clearer understanding. Okay, but of course that ideal is there in the Old Testament. It's not like the Old Testament is completely dark. It's in the Old Testament that we read, if you happen to see your enemy's cow, enemy's cow, or donkey running loose, take it back to him. If his donkey's fallen under its load, help him get the donkey to its feet. Again, love your enemies. Is that a new concept in the New Testament? No, it's right there in the Old Testament. And what about the all law? Where did Jesus get that law is about loving God and loving neighbor? It's Old Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19. 
Do not mistreat foreigners who are living in your land. Treat them as you would an Israelite and love them as you love yourself. Love your neighbor, that's Old Testament. It's just, this didn't sink in uh, back in this time. Okay, now the last point here on this is, why does God have to talk this way? And I love how this verse really encapsulates that. The people of Israel are as stubborn as mules. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? And couldn't we put ourselves into this? I mean, when we are as stubborn as a mule, how do you reach a mule? With soft, gentle, tender words. I mean, it appears that God is willing to stoop to use words, strong words, to reach us when we are stubborn mules. And I think that's why so much of the Bible is written with uh, such a force and strong words. God is trying to reach stubborn mules. All right, well, just to, to finish up here very quickly here at the end of Mark. And again, coming back to Peter. Is this Peter's gospel? And uh, we'll remember Jesus said, you're all going to betray me. And Peter strongly said, I will never say that even if I have to die with you. And because of time, I won't read this through, but you will remember Peter three times denying Jesus. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. And again, we have this other instance here and we imagine the look on the face, but the Lord turned around Jesus and looked straight at Peter. And of course, that was all Peter could take. And he remembered that the, before the rooster crows, you'll say three times, you don't know me. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. All right. How did it end? We know how it ended, but there's a tiny little detail that occurs only in the book of Mark, which, again, makes me like to think that Peter was somehow involved with this because after the resurrection and the women go to the tomb and the angels give this incredible message, they entered the tomb where they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. I know you were looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified He's not here. He's been raised. Look, here is the place where he was placed. Now go and give this message to his disciples. Hey, and especially Peter, including Peter. He is going to Galilee ahead of you, and there you will see him just as he told you. Again, you would think if you had just totally, you know, betrayed Jesus three times publicly after making such a strong statement that you wouldn't. And uh, how does God deal with someone like that? Well, here the angels come with a special message and really tell Peter, all right? So um, I love that these little details um, are in here, and I think it says um, very good things about our God. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, again, we see so much to admire about you, and it seems so clear in your life and your words but especially your actions, that you have revealed yourself to be, uh, truly we believe the words, God is love, when we come to see your life and your death. Please help us to change, help us to admire the principle of your kingdom, this other-centered service kingdom, that we would go from here and that we would treat others in this way. Amen.